0: Welcome to season two of Overcoming Working Mum Burnout. I'm your host, Dr. Jacqueline Kerr, Mum burnout survivor, behavior change scientist, and TEDx speaker. On this podcast, I interview international burnout experts, HR and DEI leaders, and lifestyle coaches to find out how we can create individual, organizational, and cultural change to prevent burnout. Because when mums thrive, the world benefits. Please take a moment to watch my TEDx talk. The YouTube link is in the show description, and my talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. You can also find a free guide to spotting burnout in your employees on my website at drjacquelinekerr.com. This week, I'm going to introduce to you the science of burnout. Last week, I interviewed Isabel Torres, who was the leader of Mothers in Science. So this week I would like to share some of that science behind burnout. So the first scientific model I want to introduce you to is called the social ecological model of behavior change. So this model posits that there are different layers in society, a bit like the layers in a baked Alaska, which is how I describe it in my TEDx talk, which influence us. So if you think of it as at the bottom of our layer of different um, pieces in a baked Alaska, at the bottom is the individual. And that's basically that we as an individual sit within an ecosystem. And surrounding us in that ecosystem is what we think about as an interpersonal layer. And that's the relationships we have with people, particularly in our families um, and in our homes. The next level is the institutional layer, and that's where do we fit um, in, in social institutions, for example, in workplaces, in healthcare institutions, in educational systems. So obviously, if we're a student, we're influenced by an educational system. If we're a patient, we're influenced by the healthcare system. And when we're working, we're influenced by the workplace around us. And then- Finally, society as a whole has a large influence on us, not just through its laws um, and, and policies, but also through culture and social norms and societal expectations. So I know that sometimes people do not like to hear that they're part of this larger system and that this system is influencing them because then they tend to feel like they're a victim of this system. And then sometimes people think, well, if I'm a victim of the system, and if it's the system's fault, then there's nothing I can do personally to change it. So I think several reasons why I really focus on this system is because it's the reality. We are influenced by multiple things. We can't escape those influences. So to me, it's really important, one, to acknowledge them, And to think about when we want to make change, we have to think about those systems. So, for example, if I was trying to go on a diet, I'm the individual trying to go on a diet. Yes, it could be partly my willpower to go on that diet. But if I'm also surrounded by people in my family who aren't eating healthily, it makes it much harder for me to stay on my diet. If I don't have fruit and vegetables in the home, for example, or if I'm having to cook um, unhealthy meals for the rest of the family. And then at the institutional level, for example, if I'm going into a workplace where there is lots of candy everywhere and there's only vending machines with unhealthy options, then it's so much harder for me to keep my willpower. And then if I live in a society where there are not healthy foods easily available anywhere I go and at reasonable prices, then again, it's so much harder for me to diet. So it's not that you're a victim of this system, but you either have supports from the systems or barriers from those systems. So in some ways, I feel like if you're struggling in a situation and particularly with a situation like burnout, it is important to remember that it's not entirely your fault. That doesn't mean that you're a victim, but it, there are many things that you can't control. And so for me, I think that's important to recognize. One, helps self-compassion because You're not able to control everything around you. And you can definitely control the things that are within your control. But you have to understand, okay, this is hard, what you're trying to do in this context. Any behavior change is difficult because it comes in this social ecological context. And the other thing is to have compassion for other people. Because when you see them struggling, rather than sort of go, oh, they're rubbish. They can't stick to a diet. You can go, yes, it's really hard to stick to a diet when you have all these things going against you. And that certainly doesn't mean don't try, but that's where again, the more we can set up systems and social systems that are supportive of health, uh, the better, the better. So you can control things personally, but also collectively we can control things in the way we vote and other decisions that we make. And particularly because of this interconnection between these layers, if you think about what you do personally or what you do as a family, it has repercussions for other people. The layers are there, they influence us, but they're also there for us to influence back out into society. So your family can influence other families around you. Um, What you bring into your workplace can influence other employees around you and can ultimately influence policymakers and decision-making. So that's why I actually see it as empowering. But I think it's important to situate any health behavior that we're trying to work on, including burnout in this larger context. Okay, so now really focusing in on burnout and burnout symptoms. So burnout is an occupational phenomenon which is recognized by the World Health Organization. So it's not an illness, it's something that can lead to other illnesses. So there isn't really a diagnosis as such for burnout versus what you might receive for something like depression. So one of the ways to get started and understand, are you experiencing burnout or are those around you experiencing burnout is to start with Dr. Christine Maslach. She has the Maslach's Burnout Inventory. And in that, the three main constructs that are measured are exhaustion, which is a feeling of being overextended, cynicism. So in some ways, what you're doing no longer has meaning and lack of productivity. And that's not total productivity, but you'll become less effective than you were before. You could still be um, working. You could still be achieving at a, a fairly high level. But what it takes you to get there is longer And I also like to think about some other symptoms that are um, described, maybe not so much in the research, but maybe in some of the, the, the more popular books around burnout, because I think it describes things like being tired, but wired. So... You're exhausted, but your brain won't switch off. Feelings of resentment, being judgmental of others, and having a lot of negative self-talk, those are also symptoms that you want to look for. And then there's things like feeling depleted and being judgmental of of others. Another description that I found helpful was um, overthinking, overgiving, overachieving, overworking, and overdrive which leads to overwhelmed. So if we think about the prevalence of burnout, like what percentage of the population is burned out, it's really hard to tell because a lot of the surveys that are out there aren't using the the Maslach burnout inventory. And to be honest, it's not that you're burnt out or not, you're on a continuum of symptoms that are part of the, the burnout process. And I think it's really important for us to not think of burnout as a badge of honor. To be honest, I would be quite proud of how busy I was. But once I actually burned out, it was so debilitating that it wasn't something that I, I was in any way proud of. So, moving on to then, what are the conditions that lead to job burnout? And this also comes from Christine Maslach's work. So those conditions are from workplace, because that's what's so important to understand. Job burnout comes from the conditions in the workplace. And that's why I think it's so important to address these conditions instead of thinking that you have to address self-care. So the conditions in the workplace are work overload, lack of autonomy, lack of reward, injustice, lack of collegiality, and value conflicts within the organization. So you can think of some of the injustice, lack of collegiality, and the value conflicts are components of what we might consider as psychological safety, where you feel it's safe to share, you can trust in your colleagues, and you feel safe to share the problems you're having. Now, those problems could be mental health problems. Is it safe for you to share that you're having mental health problems, or are you going to be penalized in some way for sharing that? Or in the medical context where a lot of the research comes from on psychological safety, is it safe to share that you have made medical mistakes? So without psychological safety, what it might look like is that in psychologically safe environments, people are more willing to to admit their mistakes. So in some ways, it looks like more mistakes are being made in those environments, but it's actually just that more are being admitted and learned from. Whereas in psychologically unsafe environments, people will be hiding the mistakes that you make. And if you think about that in a medical context, it's way worse to be hiding those mistakes because then you're not learning from them. And I think what's really important is the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs has recently created a reboot task force just here in 2022, and they are also trying to look at the drivers of burnout in the VA. And they describe what they have found as unmanageable workload, chronically feeling overloaded and unable to manage time effectively, perceived lack of fairness, feeling taken advantage of or not being treated the same as colleagues lack of job control, lack of autonomy to make decisions at work and doing tasks that don't provide joy and fulfillment, low recognition or organizational support, not getting noticed and or rewarded by a boss or organization for doing good work, interpersonal conflict, hostile or combative relationships between colleagues and or superiors, and then mismatch values. Employee has different values and priorities than the organization promotes. So these are the conditions that lead to job burnout. Another perspective that came from a paper by um, Dr. Wang called Beyond Burnout, looking deeply into physician distress. There's a very important um, model in there, similar to the ecological model that I presented to you in the first place. So what they're saying is, um, what type of um, person is likely to become a physician? So even though this is a physician example, you could ask the questions for yourself, which is what type of people come to work for you? What do they experience as a team? And what is your workplace culture? Do you have fair systems in place? So think about the the personal level in, in terms of a physician, but it could be similar in other workplaces. They have potentially unhealthy perfectionism, pathologic altruism, self-recrimination, if they don't feel good enough, and they become subject to pitfalls of success. The success means so much to them that they become victims of it. And those personal levels are then fitted within this interpersonal level. And in medicine, you can have this empathetic distress because you are um, caring for patients You can also have moral suffering because you might be a victim of um, abuse in that situation. And there is often bullying and marginalization, unfortunately, within the, the medical system. And then at a systemic level, the medical culture... The doctor believing in themselves as all powerful, the workplace environment, a stressed environment, very much overworked, the working hours, the lack of staffing, etc. And then generally the healthcare system itself and what its values are and how it operates, for example, particularly in the in the US, very much driven by profit-based, insurance-based system, where certain things are, are much more pushed in terms of you are paying for more and more testing and technologies and things that aren't necessarily delivering the most high quality care. So you could have value conflicts with that. So you can think of that in your environment as well. So are the type of people that are coming to work for you, are they go-getters looking for a quick buck who are competitive? And they value that you reward the highest sales performers, you know, if that's your environment and that's the environment that people come in expecting then that seems like a good person environment fit. But if you have people coming into your organization and, and you have those values, but the person coming in is caring, they're looking for meaning, they're looking for psychological safety, belonging, trust, autonomy, and they want objective, transparent promotion systems and they want collaboration to be rewarded, then someone like that in a very highly competitive environment wouldn't fit. So I think it's really important that we we are very honest um, with our employees when they come into a system to say what are the things you value and to check that those value systems align. It doesn't work if you try and pretend to a potential candidate that you have these great values in your organization, for example, DEI, and then they actually come to your organization, discover you haven't got equity and diversity. So those are the things that lead to burnout when there's a mismatch of that person within the environment. Caitlin Donovan has a great list of internal and external burnout causes. So on the internal side, you have things like people pleasing, overgiving, family conditioning, negative thought patterns, poor boundaries, low self-worth, trauma or bullying history, perfectionism, inability to prioritize self, trouble delegating, and trouble asking for help. So you can see that those are all the things that you might bring to the table. And then on the external side, you have things like workload, lack of autonomy, mismatch values, lack of praise, cultural pressure, lack of community, lack of role clarity, no managerial support, being a caregiver, discrimination of any kind, and then the, the, the health of the overall environment. So again, just realizing that the type of person you are within another environment, and obviously you can work to change some of the type of person you are, but you also might have a value of giving that you don't want to give up just because your workplace context doesn't value it or takes advantage of it. And I think that's the situation that can occur quite often. So now moving on to thinking about the 12 phases of burnout that come from Freudenberger and North. And so the first stage is the compulsion to prove oneself. Then you move to working harder, neglecting your needs, displacement of conflicts and needs, revision of values, denial of problems, withdrawal, obvious behavioral changes, depersonalization, inner emptiness, depression, and burnout syndrome. And I added a 13th stage of this, which is you leave your job, you lose your identity, and you let loose the inner critic. But thinking about these 12 stages of burnout, there's various points along there that somebody could could um, intervene and notice things. So for example, if you see somebody somebody, um, becoming withdrawn, if somebody who used to contribute a lot contributes less, that's a good indicator, and that's stage seven. Stage eight is obvious behavioral changes. These could be maladapting coping behaviors such as alcohol or drug abuse, but they could also just be that you're not the same person as you were, becoming hypocritical, frustrated more easily, expressing resentment, passive aggressive, eye rolling, gossiping, all these th- things could be negative sides of behaviors that make, might make you think about a person l- more poorly. And actually, it's just a symptom of the stress and the burnout they're going through. So if we go back to stage one, which is really one of the places where you can intervene, that is that compulsion to prove yourself. So I think it's really important to recognize that not only you as an individual might be bringing this need because of your family or social context to prove yourself, but also the employees that you have, these great performers, these great achievers, these um, awesome perfectionists with attention to detail, they're people that you really benefit from in your organization and and their need to prove themselves leads to productivity for you. So I think that's why it's so important to really think about that first stage because that then goes into this working harder and then starting to neglect your needs and avoiding conflict and, and that revision of, of value. So you come in with ideals of what you want, and then you slowly lose those ideals as you start to see that they don't fit in the system. So again, back to that point I made about the beginning with the social ecological model is when we think about, all these different influences have compassion with yourself and have compassion with others? And really with these 12 phases of burnout, I I really say have compassion at any stage because somebody who does feel this need to prove themselves has obviously experienced something in life where either they're only rewarded for their achievements, not for being themselves, or they've never been rewarded and they're always overlooked. And so then they are feeling like they they keep having to prove themselves. So to me, either situation is a pretty hard place to, to be starting from. So one of the questions is, does everyone go through burnout equally? And some of these statistics came from Mindshare partners where women are twice as likely to experience depression, anxiety, or PTSD, but men are more likely to succeed in committing suicide. Um, LGBTQ are three times more likely to experience mental health conditions. Race discrimination at work results in higher levels of stress and lower life satisfaction. And millennials and Gen Z are more likely to leave their work due to mental health conditions. So I think that basically says that many groups can be suffering burnout. But I think the reasons for those experiences are quite different. For example, there could be a pressure on a dad to be a provider and to not express emotions, for example, what we might consider a male stereotype. And so how you manage those expectations is quite different from the expectations that you might see for a a mom where you're thinking that she's not committed and that she's facing issues like the maternal wall, i.e. not being rewarded equally. Those are different conditions. So in the father's case, you might be thinking about, okay, how can we help with emotional intelligence and emotional development? Whereas in the mom's case, she may have lots of that, but the situation is she's not being paid equally. So I think that's what's so important to understand is what are the Causes for, for burnout and are they different? And therefore, how are the solutions different? But I think what's really important to understand is how disadvantaged groups can proceed through those burnout 12 stages from Freudenberger and North differently. So there is definitely research there around, for example, women of color being presumed incompetent and particularly for example, that parents are facing penalties, particularly mothers in their need to keep reproving themselves. So essentially what I'm saying is there are certain groups who are considered less competent, less committed, and who end up having to reprove themselves. So even though they are doing and performing equally well, they're often judged not to be because we have our own biases when we bring those judgments. Now that's men and women have those biases. So let's go back to that stage one, need to prove yourself. Well. If you need to prove yourself because of the group you belong to, that is where this becomes more problematic. So for example, society still associates genius with only one group. So if you're trying to be considered intelligent and coming up with brilliant ideas, that can be very difficult if you're not in that group that is the one that even very young children associate with geniuses. And then when your expertise is questioned because of this group that you belong to, when your potential is underestimated, and when you're penalized, if you do self promote or negotiate, it really sets you on this cycle of you keep having to re prove yourself. So you do then have to work harder. So you might have to have a higher performance level. And for example, in some situations, women are expected to perform two and a half times as well as men to reach the same level If your role is being overlooked, you're constantly having to work harder. And then you're working hard in addition to hours that you might have in another situation, either another job or as a caregiver or as a parent. So your work hours are in a, you're working hard at work and outside of work. And also again, in this sort of situation, an example from academia is for example, that in the peer review process, women are likely to be more responsive to criticisms of their work. So that would tell us that they're coming back and being more responsive and actually getting better work, but they're not getting published better. Just the quality of what they're providing is in theory better because of that process. But again, it's that need to keep proving yourself, which keeps creating that harder work cycle. And then often people in these disadvantaged groups are subject to being a stereotype it in some way. So they'll have needs, but if they're being stereotyped as a caregiver or being stereotyped as a group whose role has previously been to serve others, for example, people of color, then they're always seen in that way so they're always expected to look out for everyone else's needs which does mean they're not able to look out for their own needs as much another way that needs are suppressed is when emotions are considered weakness and essentially we know that that Expressing your emotions is your way of understanding what you need and what you want, but if you're not allowed to express them, then that can be difficult. Also, if your needs um, are suppressed because society portrays you as a superhero in some way, then the expectation feels like you can have no needs, you're there to serve everyone else, and then you become sort of a martyr to that image and, and to the cause. And that can be the case in academia, for example, that academics are sort of the martyr to the system of learning. So they're always expected to sacrifice themselves to that goal. And similarly, mothers being very sacrificial to their family's needs. And then you move on to the next stage, which is avoiding co- conflict. Now, some people have to avoid conflict because it is typical, that we get judged more highly if we do um, try to push back and raise our voices and have our points of view heard, we're then called aggressive. And again, some groups more than others have a risk of being labeled as aggressive or that angry black woman. So avoiding conflict becomes something that you try to do to avoid those stereotypes. Step number five is when you start to change your values. So for example, if the value system is that it doesn't reward collaboration, but that's something that you're very strong at, or it rewards high assertiveness in leadership and competitiveness in leadership, leadership is still defined by very male traits. So again, you would start to feel like, okay, if I'm going to succeed in this system, then I can't be as collaborative. I must be more selfish, look out for myself and drive to the top in a competitive way. So it's understandable if you start to change your values. You also then try to hide your whole self because you don't want to remind people that you don't belong and that you're not part of the culture of this system. So you you start to try and suppress the parts of you that might be typical of your group and then you also change your values because you feel to blame for the problems you're having the systems telling you that it's your fault so you start to try and change yourself to to fit in you feel very much to blame for those so you assume that it's you that has to change and that might mean compromising on your values. So if you have a value of collaboration or you have a value of um, healthiness, but those aren't valued by the organization, then that's when you have to start changing those values to fit in. And then step six of 12, if the system itself is denying that the structural barriers, they're denying pay gaps and they're denying bias, then um, again, that leads you to think that that you're the one to blame. But when there is the denial of the problem at that systems level, it starts to then lead to the next stages. As I said before, withdrawal, behavior change, et cetera, going into to full burnout. So hopefully that explains a little bit why some groups are going to be struggling more in the current working systems and the current working values. Another paper that I found um, quite eye-opening, was the association of racial bias with burnout among resident physicians. So this was um, a study of over 3,000 physicians who basically, when they experienced burnout, demonstrated greater racial bias. And then as their burnout reduced, their demonstration of racial bias reduced. So, I mean, it's not a a clinical trial, but these quasi-experimental designs, when something goes up and then when it goes down and thing goes down, these can help us understand what is going on. So I thought that was so important to realize that When we're burnt out, our brains revert back to stereotypes. We can think about our brains being wired to be biased and focused on. group that we belong to, that's an evolutionary process. And it's actually quite hard to rewire our brains to um, avoid that bias, but it's definitely possible to do, but it takes a lot of conscious effort. Now, if you're burnt out, then you don't necessarily have the mental energy to continue to moderate those kind of inherent biases that you have. So in my mind, bias leads to inequality, and in injustice and lack of reward, which we know leads to burnout. And then the burnout leads to more bias, making greater inequality, greater injustice, greater lack of reward. So I really see this rather um, unfortunate and, and ugly cycle in the relationship of burnout to bias. And so that's partly why in my approach to burnout, I really think about this alignment between burnout and bias, and then think about the solutions also being aligned, because if you reduce the barriers to progress for all groups, then that will also help improve diversity and reduce some of the causes of burnout. But in addition to workplace burnout, there is also parental burnout, which has been mostly studied by Dr. Isabel Roscram, and I interviewed her in a previous episode. And so that's one of the things to remember, that becoming a parent can be triggering. It can be a memory of childhood trauma that you've experienced, or simply that you're trying to become a parent, but the models that were all modeled to you aren't necessarily the ones you want to model yourself. So that can become um, very confusing. And so parental burnout is when you feel um, emotionally drained by your parenting, when you feel role shame in how you perform your role as a parent. And particularly if you used to be comfortable with it, and then you become less comfortable with it, and certainly not enjoying that role as a parent. And Dr. Roskam has done a 52-country study where she found that the countries where there's more likely to be parental burnout are countries like the U.S. that have this very individualistic culture and making it much harder as a parent to be able to ask for help. And you're really expected to be quite self-reliant And so that then can be problematic when you're needing help as a parent. Obviously previously how society was set up with more community and and village supports, that that wasn't such an issue, but in today's modern society, um, it can be a real barrier to asking for help. Another piece of burnout science comes from sociology, and it's basically the relationship between role strain and role conflict and burnout. So basically, when you think about the multiple roles that you might have within a job. So for example, if you are a manager, and so you're trying to manage your team, but you're also trying to respond to, to the needs of the the C-suite and you might have a role as an accountant, but maybe you also have responsibility for other things in the organization. You might be on an ERG, for example. And so when you have multiple roles within an organization, Or, for example, for academics, they have many different hats they have to wear. They're a teacher, they're a mental health advisor, they're a researcher, they're an administrator, they're a community servant. So, all these different roles can be very um, much struggling. And whereas in, say, some companies as you move into management, you less focus on your own skills and then you focus more on helping your team in academia, you're constantly having to keep your skills up to date and keep your research going. You don't get to let go of that because you're always judged by that. And you're trying to obviously help a team because you want students to be coming through and you're trying to have um, a good group of staff to help projects run. But it can be really challenging because those things are not rewarded. And then think about all those multiple roles you have within an organization and then the multiple roles you have in life. So you could be a member of a church or you could be a mother, you could be a father, a daughter, a brother, a sister, wife, husband, you can be a caregiver. So there's so many roles that you might have in your life in addition to your work role that create strain. And basically that's the, the theory of role strain is the more you have these roles, that you have strain in those roles, but also if the roles conflict with each other. So if you're trying to turn up to work and do a certain job, but you have to leave at a certain time to go pick up your kids, then that can become role conflict if your organization isn't supportive of that role. So those things also will lead to burnout. And I think too, we really have to recognize the relationship between COVID and chronic stress. So burnout is chronic stress and really we have to understand that we have been through a a very long period of much higher stress than we would normally have to be under. The uncertainty that we've had um, throughout the pandemic Uncertainty is a condition that causes a great deal of stress in humans. We haven't been able to control many elements of our life and our work, the the fear of infection, but also the contagion of these feelings of certainty and and anxiety. And I think, you know, we've been living at an elevated level of anxiety for so long that our bodies are bound to struggle in that process. But there also has been a great deal of moral distress in terms of some of the racial events that we've been witnessing, but also just the moral distress at the the deaths due to COVID and the communities that have been more highly effective and the moral distress that caregivers have been under. Normally, they're able to save patients and many of them in this situation haven't been able to. Also, I just think it's about how we do at managing change. And because the situation has been constantly changing updates and it feels like the the goalposts have always been shifting, it does feel like you end up having this burnout to, to, to change as well, because you're constantly having to adapt. And I think part of that is as well, is that we can feel comfortable just realizing this is and has been a a really, really difficult time. If we don't take a little bit more time to acknowledge that, if we're still racing to to keep up and stay positive, that also can be challenging. Again, we've built up lots of resilience, but I do think we do need to take time to acknowledge the difficulties we've been through. So now moving on to some of the science behind the solutions to burnout. So for example, Public Health England, which has a remit to protect and improve the nation's health, did a large review of the interventions that prevent burnout in high-risk individuals. There's been a review from the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health which looked at combined interventions to reduce burnout, complaints and promote return to work. So again, that was a systematic review. There's also recommendations taking action against clinician burnout, a systems approach to professional wellbeing from the National Academy of Medicine. And there is also a preventing clinician suicide, a call to action during the COVID-19 pandemic and beyond. So these are all papers in the public health and medical scientific literature, which basically are all saying we need this multi-level approach to solve burnout, that um, meditation on its own, for example, it can be quite effective. But essentially what it's saying is it's going to be much more effective if you have organizational and individual change and all these National Academy of Medicine recommendations for physicians, really focus on these different levels of change and recognizing that it's not just the individual physicians that they need to look after their health. So that's really the sort of state of the science. And that goes back to that overall concept that I, I pointed out to you in the first place, this social ecological model of behavior change. And we know that when interventions are at these different levels of change, they are likely to be more effective and our public health um, science shows that. So for example, I have a multi-level approach to solutions for particularly working mom burnout. So at the individual level, I suggest coaching, learning to adopt reasonable expectations and, and taking breaks from both your work and from parenting. At the family level, finding ways to have more shared tasks and fairly shared amongst the family to learn to communicate needs more clearly so that um, they can be met and to think about more achievable parenting techniques, ones that really help to put some of the responsibility on the kids as developing adults to help their development, but also so that you're not such a controlling and micromanaging parent. So those are things that can help us let go of these additional tasks in the family context. At the workplace, to focus on autonomy, reducing working hours so that the work hours you have are more focused, maybe working at different times of day so that conflicts between school pickup or other caregiving duties can be avoided. Having a transparent, objective and structured hiring and promotion, so that's a fair process. And for me, I really believe that as well-being becomes a key performance indicator, then a lot of the policies and practices that, w- that we know are important will then become priorities for the organization, will be invested in by orga- the organization, and they'll fall into place more. And then for me, also at the society level, I believe that there should be things like subsidized child care, child tax credits so that we can actually support our families and that there should be paid leave for all caregivers. So any form of caregiver can be supported in that role. And really overall in the general messaging for society is that um, both men and women can be caregivers and that both caregiving and work is appreciated And even through um, advertising campaigns that are coming now out of many of the the athletes who are taking breaks and recognizing their mental health, there's a power raid campaign around pause is power. So I think those types of things can really help us shift cultural changes. And then obviously, I talk a lot about behavior change. And so there's a whole science behind behavior change that I've talked about in many episodes. I'm not going to talk about that particularly today because today's really focused on the science of burnout. But those behavior change techniques can help us achieve all these different goals. And there's a whole other area of science called implementation science, which can help us implement programs in organizations. So again, in future, I might try to do um, an episode around that or develop some training about how we can use those methods to better be able to adopt programs successfully in, in organizations. So I wanted to focus a little bit more on the recommendations against clinician burnout. And so they really fit around six goals. One is to create that positive work environment, to create positive learning environments so that not only are you working in a healthy way, but you're also learning to work in a healthy way. Goal number three is to reduce administrative burden. So really thinking about tasks that that can be reduced in organizations. So really focusing on the most um, impactful tasks rather than many of these other general Housework tasks that are often only certain groups end up doing, and and they don't help with your career. Goal number four is enabling technology solutions to help us in our work environment. And although we've made much progress in technology, some of the technologies obviously are allowing us to be on twenty four seven. So is then implementing technology solutions that that bring back some control and set some guardrails on those um, solutions. And then finding all the ways you can to provide support to your employees and support to employees as they're learning some of these new te- techniques of working differently or, or looking after their well-being. So again, that's, that providing that support is just one of the goals. So these could be well-being benefits or well-being resources. So I think the, the most important thing is that the first goal is to create the work environment. And and that's separate from creating these additional supports that are also important. And then goal number six really is to invest in the research around burnout, not only burnout that clinicians are experiencing, but basically to invest in understanding what are the problems in your organization And what are the solutions that are are most likely to work? So it's where you actually are spending some investment in the evaluation and understanding and meeting your employees' needs. So that's a quick run through of some of the science around burnout, the science that I have found helpful to understand as I've come to understand my own burnout and as I've um, come to basically take my public health science approach to burnout and think, what is it that I have used in in my career as a scientist over the decades? And how can I use that understanding to really understand how we do these multi-level changes and interventions that are going to move us much further along in reducing the, the burnout epidemic that we're currently experiencing so, yeah, I hope that I made some of the science understandable. And yeah, I appreciate keeping my scientific hat on. It's not one of my roles that I find leads to job strain. I find it's an approach that really helps me cut through a lot of the um, exercises that companies seem to be doing, where they're just saying that they believe in diversity, equity, and inclusion, and saying that they're looking after their employees' mental health. And that science hat that I wear really helps me cut through and say, well, what evidence do you have? And um, so often there isn't evidence, there isn't clear behaviors that companies are focusing on But the reason that I have so much hope is because there are very clear recommendations out there taking action against clinician burnout systems approach to professional well-being. There are tens of recommendations in there that companies could adopt. So I have a lot of hope that we do know the answers. We do know what to do to change. And really now it's that intersection of how do we implement this in workplaces? How do companies become convinced to invest in it. And essentially, then we can move forward and have solutions that that actually work in the workplace. Okay. Thank you so much for listening today. Just a reminder, you can watch my TEDx talk. The um, talk is called How to Stop Burnout Before It Starts. And the YouTube link is in the show notes. And also, please go to my website and download the free guide to how to spot burnout in your employees. Okay. Thanks so much for listening today. And just a reminder, this podcast does not replace medical care. If you're feeling any physical or mental symptoms of burnout, please go to a healthcare provider or call the appropriate helpline. So burnout serious, please take care.